the qualities of a healthy church. We're looking today at gospel-shaped discipleship. Gospel-shaped discipleship. We're now moving on from chapter 1. And uh, Paul's focus in that chapter was the ordering of the church of God with emphasis on godly leadership and their qualifications. But today we want to look at now chapter 2 where we see how that ordered church should function, how it should live, how it should move. And so this will be a series on the qualities of of a healthy church. We'll spend today looking at how the gospel shapes our discipleship of one another. How the gospel shapes our discipleship of one another. And so the first point on your outline says that the gospel trains all people to live for Christ. Titus 2 verse 1 reads, But as for you, this is Paul writing to Titus, he says, As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Last time we discussed the characters of false teachers and their false doctrines that led to dead works. And Paul now begins this section with but. He says but. And Paul is contrastingly encouraging Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine that leads to good works. And so to teach what is healthy? That's what sound means. Healthy. We must serve God's people with spiritual sustenance that will cause them to grow in a healthy way. Ensure that their bedrock is sound doctrine so that they produce good fruits. Good fruits of good works. What is doctrine? The doctrine, this word is translated which means instruction. It especially relates to the results of the instruction. So we're talking about it's what you do with the instruction. Not just what we're assimilating, but what we do with the instruction. It is instruction from from authoritative sources that result in a lifestyle application. And so we are reminded in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. It's profitable for instruction, profitable for doctrine. That's what the Bible is saying. Right thinking and teaching will lead to sound doctrine being lived out. God's people need to grow in good doctrine. For a person to become a doctor, they must go through training as a medical student. And then in order for them to function as a physician, they go through those periods of time. Likewise, the bridge between sound doctrine, so healthy doctrine, and growing as a healthy Christian is training. We need training for that. There is work to be done. Note I said healthy Christians and not perfect Christians. Healthy Christians. We are incapable of being perfect this side of eternity because we are in this body of flesh. But all Christians should be growing healthily. And you need to be healthy so you can positively influence others. This is what we were talking about earlier on about the church. The church, in order for you to help others, you as a Christian need to be healthy. You need to be growing in a healthy way. 
And if you're not growing in such a way, you must examine some things. Am I hearing and taking in healthy doctrine? That's the first question you need to ask. Number two, am I being trained in sound doctrine? What I'm hearing, the instructions as I read God's word, am I being trained to godliness? Is there a resolve to live out the things that you hear and the things that you read and you study? See, the gap between these two questions will determine how much you're growing as an individual. That gap between healthy doctrine and being trained in doctrine. You cannot be trained in sound doctrine without hearing and taking in biblical instructions and knowledge. But merely hearing and taking in sound doctrine without training will make you knowledgeable but overweight. We must be trained in godliness. There are a plethora of characteristics Paul mentions that should be evident in the church, some of which pertain to older men, some older women, women, younger men, younger women. But one particular characteristic seems to weave through this passage as you read it in each group, and it's namely self-control. Self-control. As you read through verse 2 to 10, you will notice self-control is repeated three times. Verse 2, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. Verse 4, older women are to train the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled. Verse 6, likewise urge the younger men to be self-controlled. And indeed, verse 12 mentions that all true believers are to, be, to live self-controlled lives as we renounce the, the, the old ways, the ungodliness because of what Christ has done. And so we are to live self-controlled lives. And if we cast our minds back to Titus 1.8, it talks about the quality of, a church, of church leaders should be self-control. Self-control is being highlighted to us. For a reason. If there is one quality that is so vital for other qualities to flourish in a believer's life, it is self-control. If there is one quality that is so vital for you to apply biblical doctrine to Christian discipleship, it is self-control. If there is one quality that restrains and can produce good works, it is self-control. We need self-control to resist temptation. We need self-control to make and guide our decisions. We cannot love without self-control. We cannot be joyful without self-control. We cannot have internal and external peace without self-control. We cannot be patient. We cannot be kind. We cannot be gentle. All of these things depend and involve being self Control. Self-control, as we know, is a fruit of the Spirit. It must permeate the life of the church, all ages, male and female, young and old. When I was about 11 or 12, 
I developed recurring hiccups, right? And these hiccups lasted about 24 hours. And so they had to take me into hospital for examination because it was continuous. I was pretty much almost sick. Just the nausea that it was causing, it was uncontrollable. And they were so annoying that, you know, it, it would stop and then almost suddenly begin again. And I was like, where is this coming from, right? I stayed overnight in hospital and they did all these checks to try to diagnose what was going on. They checked my medical history. Yes, I had asthma as, as a little boy. They checked my lifestyle, what I was doing, what I was eating, all these type of things. And they discovered that my consumption of fizzy drinks <laughs> was the issue. I loved sweet things. I still do. I still have to be self-controlled at this stage, right? <laughs> My brothers will know, right? <laughs> I didn't fully understand it then, but I do now. Too much fizzy drinks stretches the diaphragm, which then causes it to be irritated and causes these hiccups. And so they advised me to stay away from fizzy drinks, right? So I remember as a young boy, my only holiday was going to Nigeria, right? And, uh, <laughs> and so two weeks later, I was in Nigeria and I saw this. If you know African Fanta, the way the bottle is and it's sweating, and they said, don't drink any more fizzy drinks. As a young boy, that was difficult for me. But it taught me a lesson that too much of certain things is bad for us. And self-control is so, so vital. That's just on the natural level. We're talking about spiritual things, self-control against temptation, self-control, against when you're driving, someone cuts you up and you want to say something back. It's all revealing stuff that's in our hearts. Proverbs 25, 28 compares a man without self-control to a city that's broken, left without walls. A city that is broken, left without walls. It's undone. There is no safety, there is no protection, there is no security. Without self-control, you are defenseless to attack. You're defenseless to everything in your life. To exercise self-control is to have discipline over various aspects of our lives. Self-control, as I recall Pastor Chola mentioning often over the years, is this. It's not just what we refrain from, it's what we do also. It's our response. It's not just what we try to stay away from. What do you do in response? When you're trying to fight temptation, what is your response? Are you filling your heart and your mind with God's word even the more? Why? Because your word have I hidden in my heart that I may not sin against you. I have promised, Job says, not to set my eyes on the wrong things. <coughs> Self-control. The control of our body, our mind and actions is not only the restraint, but the response. Verse 2 says, older men are to be sober-minded. That is saying, do not be drunk, do not be overcome by wine, but don't let things of the world just sit and weigh upon you and just overwhelm you to the stage that you're not of sound 
mind. And the same is said for older women in verse 3. Do not be a slave to too much wine. The issue here is self-control. The Bible often pairs self-control with being sober-minded. To be sober-minded, you need to be sound-minded. Restraint and discipline from anything that clouds your judgment and affects your thinking and thus your actions, it's not enough. The restraint is not enough. You need to know why you should have discipline. Why should you be disciplined in the consumption of food and drink? Because being filled with the goodness of Christ through the Holy Spirit far outweighs the highs, the taste, the delight in those things. Christian self-control is a matter of the heart and conduct. It is both internal and outward actions. Your position in Christ is through the Holy Spirit and therefore your outward conduct must be in relation to what you know and know and, and, and cherish in Christ. In contrast, we are reminded in chapter 1, the Cretans mentioned were described as always lies, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. They couldn't control their lips. They couldn't control their emotions. They couldn't control their stomachs. And although it is not explicitly expressed that older women should have self-control in this passage, but the mere fact that they are to train younger women to be self-controlled signifies they also must practice what they preach. Young women and young men too must be self-controlled. You need to keep purity in your thoughts, your morals, your character, in response to your parents. How do you talk to your parents? To those in authority over you, in modesty, in the way you dress, the words you use, your tone, what your eyes look at. How does does a gospel train us in self, to have self-control? Well, Jesus Christ is the grace of God that has appeared. The grace of God that has appeared. Verse 11 to 12 says this. Grace that has appeared has brought salvation to all people and trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, ungodly lives. So what the Bible refers to as self-control is not you gathering the strength to control your mind and your desires and determine your responses and actions as you will, as you desire, as in your own strength, as other religions teach. But rather, it is the work that Christ has done in every believer. And yet, it's not without your involvement. You have responsibility. You must work to be self-controlled as a believer. But you're not doing this on your own standard. Jesus has lived a perfect, self-controlled life for all his followers, for all Christians, for the church. And upon his person and work, do all Christians trust and depend. If we as Christians grew in this single, this, this single quality, our churches would grow in godliness so much 
in holiness and therefore Christ-likeness. See, training and sound doctrine and the word of the faith involves the following, involves, sorry, following the object of your faith, Christ Jesus. How are you to grow healthy spiritual lives as a follower of Christ? How are you to grow in this way? Well, Paul gives us some categories. Older men. We've already t- touched on being sober-minded. But if we want to understand it further, it's the renewing of mind. The renewal of mind through the washing of, through God's work. As well as being self-controlled, older men are to live dignified life. A dignified life. A life worthy of being emulated. A life worthy of being followed. Follow me as I follow Christ. The way you carry yourself, your speech, your behaviour, your example to others around you, most especially younger men. Are you worthy of respect? One cannot demand respect if your life is not worthy of such respect. As men get older, they should mature in sound faith, in love and in steadfastness. As it says in verse 2, the word of God is your bedrock in temptations and trials. Your faith in Christ underpins all that you do. And the gospel has shaped you, has shaped your life that you have much compassion for others. You care for those around you, believers and unbelievers. You should have a healthy love for people. Of late, I've been praying that the Lord will give me a healthy love. For people. Healthy love for people is so self-denying. It's so dying to self. Giving of yourself to others. But also healthy endurance through life's murky waters. As an older man, you would know that. And that steadfastness, that vibrant faith in Christ must be used for a purpose. Of the believers to be strengthened. Is that you? See, what age is Paul referring to? Are we talking about those that are 50 and above? 60? He doesn't specify an age. He just says older men. But when you read verse 7, Paul is instructing Titus. He says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, And sound speech that cannot be condemned. So that an opponent may be put to shame. Having nothing evil to say. About us. See Titus was also a young man at this stage. Yet Paul is telling Titus to be a model to younger men. This is not an age thing. It's not a matter of the age alone. But of spiritual maturity. A man maturing in faith produces good works, living godly, a godly life, growing in integrity, dignity and speech, which reveals a heart submitted and devoted to Jesus. It is often said that one of the things that men want the most is respect. But for a Christian man, respect is not to be demanded as some sort of trophy or hold on others. Respect is the effect of godly living that is a model for others. 
A life that submits and points others to Jesus. Older women and younger women. See, notice the instruction to older women and younger women are intertwined. The instruction is intertwined. In verse 3, older women likewise are to be reverent in the way they live. Not to be slanderers or slaves. That is addicted to much wine. They are to teach and to train younger women to live, to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, so that the word of God may not be reviled. You see, the phrase, in the same way, can replace likewise. In the same way, women are to be reverent in behaviour. This reverent in behaviour is actually one word in the Greek meaning priest-like. Women are to be priest-like. The understanding is that older women should be holy in their behaviour. Women are to live godly lives with godly characters full of grace received from Christ. Godly women are so vital to the life of the church. Godly women are so vital. You don't need to be on a catwalk, to be a model for younger women. You need to walk with Christ. You need to be walking with Christ and pointing others to Christ. See, while advancement in age and years is not the gauge of maturity, older women who demonstrate a life devoted to Christ and adorned should should live a life and demonstrate a life devoted to Christ and adorned with Christ-likeness. That's the adornment of a godly woman. Not the outward appearance, but adorned with the beauty of Christ, the love of Christ, cherishing and hungry for Christ in a way that your life just pours out into others. That's the Christ-likeness model. Such women are not slanderous. They're not violent with their words, to maliciously hurt others with their words. They say in general that women talk more than men. I don't know if that's true. (laughs) But I think Paul here is saying that take care with much speech. I've come to notice in my life, with much speech, there's a tendency to say things that are wrong. There's a tendency with much speech to gossip, to criticise, to find fault, to slander. This is the same for men also. We do it. When we talk too much, we start letting things slip that we shouldn't be letting slip. Loose talk. Older women, the Bible says, a woman's duty and way of teaching, primarily is teaching younger women. Teaching younger women. What a challenge the Bible and God has given to you. To teach younger women. You have been tasked with teaching the next generation of women in the church. The next household. You've been challenged with your daughters, young women in the church. Nieces, daughters-in-laws, cousins, 
your friend's daughter. Get alongside them. Teach them to love and to live in obedience to God and to prioritize his commands. Teach what is good. Train the younger married women what love looks like. In your word and your deed, in your behavior, in your action, is more, love is more than a feeling, but a commitment and denying of self, giving themselves to their husbands. Teach that, encourage that, as you do this unto the Lord. That's always the focus. Do those things as unto the Lord. Younger men, be self-controlled. Younger men, be self-controlled. Men are so simple. Men are so simple. This is the only thing it says to younger men. Be self-controlled. But with simplicity comes hard work. Young men are hard work. I know our hard work. Yeah, for my wife and for my parents, how hard of a work I am. I recognize this. And Paul writes, urge, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Younger men need earnest and persistent persuading to be trained to have self-control. Dad's in the house. Brother's in the house. We need to be persistent. We need others to be persistent with us. To earnestly draw us to be self-controlled in Christ. A lack of self-control is the root of many sinful Activities, as I said earlier. And so we have looked at how the gospel shapes individual characters. But now we must consider how these individuals grow in community and begin to impact the growth of others. And this is our final point this morning. The gospel trains all people in community to live for Christ. Cast your eye back to chapter 1, verse 4. Paul writes to Titus. To Titus, my true child in a common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Saviour. Paul makes mention of this father and son relationship he has with Titus as a springboard to chapter 2. Such a relationship was crucial for leadership, but also for the members of the local church. I'm not suggesting that we should go about calling people my son in the faith or my daughter in the faith, right? But the illustration here gives emphasis that there should be Christians. There should be Christians within a local church at various stages in their walk, impacting on one another's growth in Christ. That's the point. Particularly those who are mature. Godliness is Christ-likeness. Not making people like we are, not dressing them like we are, not talking and making them talk like we talk, but rather instead you to cause them and teach them to set their eyes on Jesus, to point to Jesus. He's the focus. Part of growing to be a healthy church is having intergenerational disciple, discipling relationships. This is why it's such a blessing to be in such a church. 
It's, it's not ideal just to be in a church where they're just, I just want to go to a church where it's just young people. How do you grow? When there's no mature Christians that walk certain journeys. We have brothers and sisters in Christ so that we can be built and edify one another to grow, to be like our dear saviour and brother, Christ. And without healthy instruction of sound doctrine, the church does not grow in a healthy way, as we said earlier. When we speak of churches growing, we're not talking numerically. That's not the gauge of growth. That's a blessing. But growth in any church is through the gospel-shaped discipleship. Gospel-shaped discipleship. And that is in three folds. Number one, the centralization of the gospel in every teaching, in every ministry, in every service of the church. That is the center and that is what we're focused on. That is what we are hunger for. That the good news is preached, is taught, is shared and is lived out. Number two, the restraint and killing of individual and corporate sins. That's the mark of a growing and healthy church. The restraint and killing of sin. People come to church. Sin, when it comes in the church, must die. That's what the gospel does. To kill sin and to point your eyes to a saviour. Number three. Number three, the cross-generational discipleship of the local body of Christ. So, so important. Older men, older women, you're so vital, mature. Don't feel like I've got there now. The work has just begun. To invest in other people's lives, to build up the church, to know Christ. In this day and age that we're living in, it's getting more dark. And the next generation need to hear the gospel. They need to see the gospel in action also. And so let's look at that number one. The gospel must be central to all that is done in the church. See, the, church, the charge to preach and teach sound doctrine is across chapter one and chapter two. And it's rooted in the understanding that the gospel of God has saved us. And so the good news of Jesus permeates, must permeate every ministry within the church, in our singing, in our giving, in altering ministries, in the diaconate ministries and so on. See, the person and work of Jesus must be central to all the teaching in our church. The gospel gives life and consists and assists every believer in daily living. To live, as we said earlier, self-controlled lives, upright and godly lives. Discipleship is it's not, it's not just the scheduling of our meetings, our meetups and catching up every so often. We can become so rigid sometimes in those actions. And in fact, I, I think long term, those things can, be, can have a negative effect. Discipleship truly must not just be a fact-finding thing, not just a fact-giving thing, but a soul-searching, life-giving 
being able to ask those difficult questions to others. What have you been watching this past week? How has your Bible reading been? Are you praying, sister? How's your relationship with your in-laws? Some deep questions we mustn't shy away from. <coughs> Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 to 8. But we were gentle among you, like nursing mother, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. We were, not, we were ready not just to share with you the gospel, but also to share of our own selves because you have become very dear to us. And he goes on to say in verse 11 to 12, For you know how, like a father with children, we exhorted you, each one of you, and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So gospel roots leads to gospel fruits. It involves not just sharing the gospel, but the giving of our lives to it. The giving of our lives to God the giving of our lives to those who we are building and strengthening and walking alongside, it involves a life-transforming decision where your life is living for Christ and loving people. To love people is difficult, but in Christ, when we've been given so much, it becomes easier. We grow in love for others also. The wonderful truth of the gospel grounds a believer in community where they are nursed, as Paul says, where they are cared for as God's people. And so the gospel determines a charge that the, sorry, the gospel determines a charge of love in every aspect of the body of Christ. The teaching of the gospel is because of God's elect. Out of the affection, Paul says he was gentle among the people, not just to share with them, but to give of himself. See how the gospel is applied to our own personal progress and growth in godliness is through self-denial. Applying the gospel to those we disciple is through self-denial. Every exhortation, every encouragement, every charge is grounded in the gospel and the giving of ourselves as you walk in fellowship with others. The purpose of Titus 2, 1 to 10 is to help us as a church. It's to help us to function as a body. It's to help us to grow, to live healthy Christian lives. There is need for older, women, older men in the church to put a holy work to continue to be sound in faith. Sound in love and steadfastness. There's never a time to retire. There's never a time to put our feet up, so to speak, until we get to that place of rest. We are to put in the work. It is time for you to put your feet to work, even as you advance in years, even as the body grows faint. 
but the Lord quickens us by the Spirit. Likewise, churches must not discard older men. You can learn a lot from spending time with those that are mature in Christ. Older men, what is at stake is the lives of the future younger Christians following your example. Don't let your love grow cold. You've been tested and time should show that you are holding firmly and tightly, even more so, to Christ. Older women, teach what is good and what is pure. Where do you see yourself in the life of the church, in your home, in society? You are to live holy and faithful lives, faithful to Christ, faithful to your husband if you're married, faithful to your children, faithful to the church, faithful to the community. To you has been given the responsibility to teach the next generation of younger women to follow Christ, to love him dearly, to be pure in heart and deed as they love others. You have a, such a massive part to play, as I said earlier, in the next generation, in the next generation of households. Young women, you need old, older women. Young women, you need older women. Someone who has walked the Christian journey and is reverent in behaviour. She does not have to be perfect, but you ought to see her dependency on God and his word. And how that word informs their day-to-day living. Younger men, control yourselves. Control yourselves. Control your ego. Control your desires. Control your flesh, control your speech, control your eyes. You too need older men who are healthy in faith, who are healthy in love, healthy in endurance, who are striving to live self-controlled lives by the help of the Holy Spirit. And so, as I close, how do we apply this even more? Four things. We must teach the gospel. Number one, teach the gospel. Teach the gospel to others. But not just teach the gospel to others. Testify of how the gospel has saved you. Share with others how the gospel has influenced your life. How it's changed you from inside out. How it's made you and is making you more Christ-like. Show weakness also. Why? Boast in that weakness because the weakness is in Christ. Because in Christ, his strength is perfected. Testify of your weaknesses. Testify of your strengths also. Share the gospel. Teach the gospel how it's shaping your lives in the highs and lows of your life. Number two, model good works with godly character. Model this. Strive to live in a godly way, to be a witness to those around you. Number three, Live together in community. Live together in community. Prioritise the gathering of the saints. Prioritise and spending time with other believers. Make that a must. Iron sharpens iron. We need each other. Others. We need each other, brothers and sisters. Finally, pray that the Lord would help you to grow in love for others. Pray that God would help you to love others in a way Christ has loved you. 
So that indeed you can pour of yourself to others. Indeed, as you love the Lord, it becomes easier to do that. Pray that you are able to. Pray that you continue to grow and that God would help you to be intentional in your walk alongside others. Life can be so busy. Life can bring so many challenges our way. But others need us. One of the things we must learn about churches, it's not what we're receiving. It's more so how we're giving. What are we giving? And if we're not being filled with God's word, if we're not studying God's words, if we're not growing, we're not able to give out. We're not able to give out in times of need. So, so important. Pray that you, maybe even as I'm speaking this morning, as you go home, someone that's come into your mind, pray that you will be a support to them. As I conclude, I believe that this passage is challenging us, challenging us all in what we think about church. It is not a social club. It is not our weekly dose of good. It is not simply a building. Like Abigail reminded us earlier, church is the body of believers in Christ who have renounced and repented of their sins and are in union with Jesus, thereby unified with one another. See, gospel-shaped discipleship is rooted in the transformative work of Christ in a believer, which then overflows to others in love. Are you a member of this local church? Well, you must ask yourself, why am I a member of my local church? Am I growing in sharing the gospel? Am I modelling good works? If so, continue. Continue to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, worthy of your call to the local body of Christ. Are you a believer attending this local church but not yet a member? You may need to ask, what does the Bible teach about being part of a local body of Christ? How do you show your commitment to the growth of others without commitment to the local church? These are questions you must ask. Are you here today and unsure of who Jesus is? Who is this Jesus? What is the church we were talking about earlier? The Bible says Jesus has come to save all people. All have sinned, all have come short of the glory of God. The church, sinners are sinners saved by grace. Not people who live for themselves, but rather those who live for Christ, who have been rescued from their sins. Jesus, that Jesus can wash away your sins, can redeem you, can strengthen you. Jesus saves from the consequences of sin, God's wrath that he pours out, God's judgment, death, saves from sin, saves from Satan, saves you from hell, eternal damnation. Why don't you turn to him? Right now, you are in a building called church, but you are not part of the church. You're not the church. 
You're not in the family of God. Please don't let this moment pass you by without coming to repentance, repenting of your sins, turning away from your sins and trusting in Jesus. He can forgive you your sins. There is no sin that you've committed. There's no way you've gone too far that he cannot turn you back and make you a son in his kingdom. Jesus saves sinners. He's the only one. There is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. I pray that you would give your heart to him. I pray that you would know this God and his people. There's a glorious kingdom to come. The church is not perfect now, but the Lord is perfecting us. He's working to cleanse his church. He's working to cleanse his bride. When the bridegroom will return one day, the Bible says he's purifying for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The good news of Christ trains individuals not to live for themselves, but to live as a holy body, a living body in community. Amen.